0: Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Good morning, Living Word Family Church. Good to have you here today. How good is it to be back in the meeting house, huh? Hey, listen, thank you, thank you, thank you for your patience as, and your cooperation in dealing with all of these precautions uh, that we're learning a lot uh, day by day and week by week how to do this. We will get there. And meanwhile, remember, we've never done this before. Nobody's ever done this before. <laughs> Not like this, uh, but we'll get there and thank you for your cooperation. Thank you for your patience and thanks for coming today. Uh, good morning to you too, who might be watching a live stream or a recording later. Uh, can't wait to see you one of these days as well. <sighs> wow, oh wow, what a week. You know, last week we had an amazing and beautiful service in the east parking lot. I think most of you were probably here for that. It went so well that had several people come up and say, we need to do that once in a while, COVID or no COVID. It's a good, it was kind of cool for the neighborhood to be able to see us out there. We weren't a disturbance, I think the sound worked wonderfully between the radio and the speakers. Everybody had a great time. And I would love, I'm down with that. I'd say, yeah, let's do that. Problem is, it's a little hard to plan Uh, weather-wise. Everything's kind of dependent on the weather, and it couldn't have been better than it was last week. That was fantastic. but. Also, since it was such a glorious day and because it was our first time worshiping together since March, I made the conscious decision last week not to mention anything about COVID, nothing about the restrictions or Supreme Court rulings or any of that stuff, because I just wanted the focus to be, of course, on Jesus, but also on Pentecost and also on celebrating being together. And I feel a little bit that way today because it's our first Sunday back in the building. Uh, you know, um, I'm not going to do that though. I have to go a different direction today. This is back to something I said. I believe it was in my first recorded message. It was certainly it was the fireside chat. Do you remember that one? I think it was the first or second time I did a recording to send out, and you know, once the restrictions were in place. And I mentioned that uh, I did a little bit of detailed talking about this uh, this COVID-19 thing because uh, my ju- and my justification for that was. Uh, You know, we don't want to let the world and the news and events dictate what we address from from day to day and week to week. You know, our focus needs to be on Jesus and the Word of God. But sometimes there is a battle going on in our culture that needs to be addressed from a gospel standpoint. And there's a quote from Luther that I won't share. It's attributed to Luther that I, I won't share the whole quote again today. But that's the heart of it is that if we are professing Christ, we need to confess Christ in the area where culture is pressing in on us at that moment. So, uh, all that to say that there is a line, and sometimes it's a fine line, sometimes I can't tell where that line is, between taking cultural issues seriously and being distracted by those issues to the detriment of the gospel, okay? There are things that I believe and that you believe, things that we believe about, uh, and we believe strongly about our rights as Americans and about the best way of exercising those rights. But we must always remember that our first allegiance is to the kingdom of God. There can't be any mistake about that. And sometimes, stick with me through this, sometimes service to that kingdom means not insisting loudly on our rights in this one, meaning the United States. Before you gasp or worry or think I've turned into a bleeding heart, listen to me. Let me remind you that Jesus had rights. Not just as God the Son incarnate, I mean he had legal rights. His trial was illegal. His conviction and his sentence were patently unjust. And he had opportunities right up to the very end to speak in his defense. From a legal standpoint, from a human rights standpoint, the crucifixion was an absolute travesty of injustice. But Jesus had his attention and his will focused on the plan of God and willingly laid his rights aside to fulfill his divine purpose. Just remember that for context, because I am not saying we should lay down at this point and let the government tell us what to do no matter what. I ain't there, folks. The stay-at-home, the no-gathering restrictions, uh, those are a discussion for another day. For now, things have settled down in that regard. Actually, they haven't settled down. They've been overtaken by other events, haven't they? Specifically, They've been overtaken by the demonstrations related to the killing of George Floyd and the broader issues of race relations in America. This is not my favorite subject to talk about, but it's the subject we need to talk about now. Ushers lock the doors. Nobody leaves. <laughs> if I'm uncomfortable, everybody's uncomfortable, okay? Okay. Now, this is the hard part, because there is absolutely no way on earth that I can address every detailed element or every concern that is related to this. The the protests, the riots, the looting, the claims, the counterclaims, this is a problem, and it's a problem for everybody, no matter where you land on specific issues. The problem is this, I cannot see into the heart of anyone. I cannot begin to accurately judge the motives of any individual who is participating in a protest or anything like that. I can confidently condemn certain actions, right? But I cannot see what drives everybody's train. So what do we do? What do I do? I read, I listen, I hear voices from as many different people and from any different angles on this thing as possible. And what do I learn? I learn that there are the opinions and thoughts on this moment are more all over the map than anything I have seen in my nearly 56 years on this planet. White conservatives denouncing Trump, black liberals defending Trump. That doesn't cover everything, but it gives you an idea of just how broad the spectrum of opinion is on this thing. We are completely disunified. Is that a word? What's the word I'm looking for? We're divided as a nation. There are so many voices that I am convinced that it is literally impossible to arrive at the truth just by sorting through those voices. If you are 100% convinced that you are right in your position regarding this thing, I carefully and humbly offer my opinion that you have not listened or read enough. Because we're all probably wrong about something. When I began to realize what I needed to talk about today, (laughs) it didn't take long for me to start getting twisted into knots. It's too big. Can't cover enough. It's too risky. It's divisive. It's whatever. How about we just ignore it for a week and enjoy being together? Let's praise the Lord and just pray about it. But I couldn't get the release. So let me say that I am not about to try to give you the big picture here. You've got as good an idea of that as I have. And I'm not here to tell you the right way to think about anything from a political angle. Let me instead bring out just a couple of starting points where we can check our hearts. Because judgment begins where? It begins in the house of God. That doesn't mean in this room. It means in this room. It means in here and in your heart. That's where judgment has to start. Let's check ourselves, and then we can begin to accurately assess what's going on around us. In Psalm 139, and you can open your Bibles to that, David spends most of this psalm, and it's a well-known psalm, expressing his awe over God's perfect, complete knowledge of man. That there is no place we can hide from God. There is nothing we can say, nothing we can do, nothing we can even think that is hidden from him. And then David spends a couple of verses uh, declaring his loyalty to God and his love for God and ends with this, Psalm 139, beginning in verse 23. "'Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting.'" So when I say check our hearts, this is what I really mean. Honestly and humbly ask God to check your heart. David, on one hand, is pretty confident that his ways and his thoughts and his attitudes are pleasing to God. At the same time, he is humble enough to recognize that God knows David better than David knows David. So he says, God, you check. See if there is any evil way in me, any wicked way. And if there is, lead me away from that way and in the way of everlasting life. Now, especially when we are feeling passionate about something and feel the need to be heard, we should pray this prayer. Because God knows even your motives better than you know your motives. Now, here's another thing about all the voices out there. You know, Proverbs uh, 15.22 says, Without counsel, plans go awry but in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Uh, this is often uh, quoted in shorthand as, in the multitude of counselors, there is safety, or in a multitude of counselors, there is wisdom. But Proverbs ten nineteen says this, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Now, what's that, what that mainly refers to is, the more you keep talking, the more likely you are to sin. But it also can be referring to a multitude of voices. The more people are talking, the more likely sin is going to be somewhere in the mix. So we have to balance that multitude of counsel, multitude of voices. So let me dive in here with two things. There are two specific things, but one is a principle and one is a concrete example. And both of them will make people mad. That's not why I'm sharing them. Please, please remember that these are two examples that I'm bringing forward to get us thinking and praying the right way. They are not intended, cannot possibly be intended to be the last word on anything, and they are not any kind of solution. The solution comes at the end of this message. Here's the first example. What do the words white privilege mean to you? Don't answer. Just think about it. It's amazing how divisive those two little words can be. One person will say, the only reason you've been able to accomplish what you've accomplished is because you were born white, or white people have everything handed to them. That's white privilege. On the other end of the spectrum, someone says, there is no such thing as white privilege. Or, more commonly, I'm white and nobody ever gave me anything. Both of those extremes miss the point of what white privilege is. Here's the best thing I read, the simplest definition of white privilege and the hardest one to argue against. White privilege doesn't mean your life isn't hard white privilege means the color of your skin isn't making it harder. To deny that, you have to deny that racism not only exists, but that it is unfortunately common. And it should go without saying that just because someone doesn't hate or want to kill people of color, it doesn't mean they're not racist. It also doesn't mean that all white people are racist. Can we agree on that? All right, but let me give you an example. And I have Rainey's permission to share this. And it might sound silly to you, but I'm just giving you an example of how racism isn't always hatred. When Rainey was little, she was probably six. We were living in Farmer City and we had a family. Uh, A family in the ministry over at our house, and we were all enjoying each other's company, and they had a little boy who was a couple years, uh, maybe a year older than Riley, a couple years older than Rainey, and uh, they were all getting along. They were playing together, and at one point, Rainey says to this little boy, I like you, and this little boy says, I like you too, but not that way, because I could never marry a black person. Now, Rainey wasn't proposing to the kid, I don't think, and this kid, there was no attitude. He didn't call her a name. There was nothing hateful about it. But it was the first time Rainey had ever experienced somebody making a comment, making a judgment based solely on the color of her skin. And she, she barely remembered this incident, but I remember it well because she came to me saying, what on earth did he mean by that? Yeah. Rainey... Has always. We never made a big deal. We, we didn't talk about the difference when she was little, but she was always keenly aware of it. I remember we were walking through Meijer uh, one night, uh, doing some shopping, and there was a little black girl sitting on the floor playing with something. I don't even think it was a toy aisle. I think she was playing with a box of cereal or something. And Rainey sat down right next to her and said, Daddy, like point, look, same, same. Not too long after that, we were at a funeral in Bedford and uh, for Beth's cousin, I think. And uh, the greeter was uh, an older black woman and she shook our hands. And when Rainy shook her hand, she grasped it, Rainy did it. She held this and said, Daddy. She's always been very aware of it, but that was the first time that incident I just referred to was the first time somebody had made, and this is something I got to think about, you know, th- and this is something she will have to live with. You know, most, most uh, girls want to get married. Most guys want to get married. And we think, well, we're going to meet some people, and we're going to have certain, certain situations that are going to introduce us. And obviously, we, leave, we, we, we don't leave God out of the picture. We trust God to bring us our spouse. But there might be a perfectly nice, acceptable, good husband material who will not consider Rainey as good wife material, not because he hates black people, but that he would never consider marrying one. You know that's true. So, and that's just a tiny, tiny example of how racism doesn't always manifest itself as explicit hatred. Now, it should go without saying that Just because it's not your fault that white privilege exists doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because it's not your fault that racism exists doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Now, here's the concrete case. And I really wrestled with bringing this one up because so many people I love have shared it. So I apologize in advance. (laughs) but it's just too perfect an example to ignore. There is a conservative commentator who, by the way, I adore. Big fan. Uh, And and, uh, she recently released a video explaining why she could not get behind the idea of George Floyd as a martyr and a role model simply because he was a horrible person. Uh, She cited his criminal convictions, his multiple prison stints, and his addictions. And this thing went viral because this commentator was not an old white guy, but a young black woman. Very well spoken. And again, I'm a big fan. But here are my problems with that video. Number one is this I've read, honestly, to be honest, I've probably spent a little too much time reading articles. And opinions on this George Floyd thing, and I've not seen one person hold George Floyd up as a role model and a paragon of virtue. I'm not saying it hadn't happened, I've not seen it once. I have read several people saying he's a nice guy, he's a good friend. Can I tell you a little story here? <laughs> I don't know how many of you remember I used to work at Canaan Land Ministries, which was a home for men with life-controlling problems? Half of these guys at any given time were there as an alternative to prison. Several of them were there after having been in prison. I had, I'm thinking of two specific guys, all right, who were great friends of mine. They weren't just students. The longer I was there, the closer, the closer we got. One guy's name was James, one guy's name was Darwin. And Darwin had a rap sheet way longer than George Floyd's. And so did, uh, so did James. Uh, in fact, it was probably, those two probably had the longest rap sheets. They both had done prison time. Uh, and they were all addicts, but they were good guys. I mean, nice, and people you would want to hang around with. And so, and those, so you understand those things aren't mutually exclusive. They had life-controlling problems that they were at Canaan land to get free from. Number two, she said in her commentary that she believes in second chances, just not seventh, eighth, and ninth chances. I'm sorry, but Jesus said something about 70 times seven. More importantly, at least to me, I cannot speak for you. I have needed more than two or three chances. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. He went to prison for five years for the worst of his crimes and had been out for more than five years at the time this happened. Now, she repeated in her defense, several times she repeated that, she, that none of this meant that George Floyd deserved to die and that she hoped the police officer responsible was brought to justice. But she continued, repeating a litany of reasons to think he was a horrible person. Person, My problem with that video and any that might express similar sentiments is the only point that seems to be making is, yeah, it's too bad that he died, but since he was such a horrible person, it's not that bad a thing that he died. I know that's not what she was saying. It's just what it sounds like. And I know this is not a specifically racist issue. My problem with those views uh, is, number one, we've had criminals in this church. We've had addicts in this church. My company commander was nearly arrested in the Philippines for passing a counterfeit $50 bill that his grandmother sent him in a birthday card. I don't think either one of them knew it was counterfeit. Hope not. What does any of this have to do with us? I'm trying not to project my issues onto you, but here's what I've experienced and observed over the years. We look for reasons. We tend to look for reasons when bad things happen to people. If someone dies of cancer, we want to look at lifestyle issues. We want to look at how they didn't take care of themselves. Uh, When somebody uh, is raped, we want to know what was she doing walking home from a party by herself that late, and what was she wearing? After all, she was drunk. There were a couple teenagers, I'm thinking this was back in the 90s, and I'm thinking it was, I wish I, I, I did not dig for the details, but I, I'm, I'm convinced it happened somewhere uh, in this area. It wasn't St. Joe, it wasn't Champaign, but somewhere uh, north of town, I, I believe, north of St. Joe, there were a couple of teenagers who went to a liquor store. They were underage, but they went to buy liquor illegally or at least see if they could. And while they were there, uh, a robbery took place that ended with those two teenagers getting shot to death. Now, they did nothing deserving of death. But I talked about that episode as a youth pastor, as a way of reminding students that it is a tragedy that if, in this case, those two guys got killed, they did nothing deserving of death. However, had they not been where they weren't supposed to be, they wouldn't have got shot. So, you see, there are lessons in, in things like this that we need to be telling our kids. But when something like this happens, th- this, is, this is tone deaf. This is—these uh, th- are life lessons. Again, training our children, but we're talking about the issue of injustice. In this case, you know, the, the, you cannot, in, in, in other words, those kids shouldn't have been where they were, but the guys who shot them in that ditch were 100% guilty of killing them. Same way with George Floyd. Unless something happened that so far nobody is talking about, the killing of George Floyd was utterly unjust. And if that doesn't bother never mind. It bothers you. <laughs> I know it bothers you. It bothers you. But maybe a video telling you about what a horrible person he was makes it bother you a little less. That's all I'm saying. But what if I told you, not trying to scare anybody, what if I told you, though, that there was someone in this room right now who is guilty of something that calls for a clear application of the death penalty. I'm not talking about somebody who used to go to this church. I'm talking about somebody who's here today. Go ahead and look around for a second, see if you can figure out who it is. Surprise, it's me. Oh, it's also you. Ah, now you get it. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death. Yeah, but no buts. If you think that you are better off today, (laughs) if you think that you are free of chains, free of guilt, free of prison for any other reason than the shed blood of Jesus Christ, then you do not appreciate properly the finished work of Jesus Christ, and you do not appreciate the horror and stench of your sin. I mention those things, white privilege and the posthumous denigration of George Floyd because those are two things that we can address in our own hearts. We have not even touched things like Black Lives Matter, Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter, black-on-black crime, looting versus rioting versus demonstrating. We have not touched the sinister plots of Antifa, the spin different people are putting on certain photo ops or statements. We haven't addressed the insanity of trying to reconcile hundreds and even thousands of protesters shoulder to shoulder while we are still supposed to be worried about social distancing. The world is burning. (laughs) And one question people are starting to ask, Thank God they are starting to ask, especially of the protesters, is what action are you going to take to change things? What do you hope to actually accomplish? Is there a solution? Is there hope? And before I offer you the scriptural answer, I want to read to you. I apologize. It's a little long, and I have taken some out just for just to shorten it a little, but I want to read this to you because, personally, I find it to be a pretty reasonable plea from the standpoint of civic responsibility. (laughs) A little hair on my screen there, oops. As millions of people across the country take to the streets and raise their voices in response to the killing of George Floyd and the ongoing problem of unequal justice, many people have reached out asking, how can we sustain momentum to bring about real change? Ultimately, It's going to be up to a new generation of activists to shape strategies that best fit the times, but I believe there are some basic lessons to draw from past efforts that are worth remembering. First, the waves of protests across the country represent a genuine and legitimate frustration over a decades-long failure to reform police practices and the broader criminal justice system in the United States. The overwhelming majority of participants have been peaceful, courageous, responsible, and inspiring. They deserve our respect and support, not condemnation, something that police in cities like Camden and Flint have commendably understood. On the other hand, a small minority of folks who have resorted to violence in various forms, whether out of genuine anger or mere opportunism, are putting innocent people at risk, compounding the destruction of neighborhoods that are often already short on services and investment and detracting from the larger cause. I saw an elderly black woman being interviewed today in tears because the only grocery store in her neighborhood had been trashed. If history is any guide, that store may take years to come back, so let's not excuse violence or rationalize it or participate in it. Amen. If we want our criminal justice system and American society at large to operate on a higher ethical code, then we have to model that code ourselves. Second, I've heard some suggest that the current problem of racial, uh, of racial bias in our criminal justice system proves that only protests and direct action can bring about change and that voting and participation in electoral politi- uh, politics is a waste of time. I couldn't disagree more. The point of protest is to raise public awareness, to put a spotlight on injustice, and to make the powers that be uncomfortable. In fact, throughout American history, it's often only been in response to protests and civil disobedience that the political system has even paid any attention to marginalized communities. But eventually, aspirations have to be translated into specific laws and institutional practices. And in a democracy, that only happens when we elect government officials who are responsive to our demands. Moreover, it's important for us to understand which levels of government have the biggest impact on our criminal justice system and police practices. When we think about politics, a lot of us focus only on the presidency and the federal government. And, yes, we should be fighting to make sure that we have a president, a Congress, a U.S. Justice Department, and a federal judiciary that actually recognize the ongoing corrosive role that racism plays in our society and want to do something about it. But the elected officials who matter most in reforming police departments and the criminal justice system work at the state and local levels. It's mayors and county executives that appoint most police chiefs and negotiate collective bargaining agreements with the police unions. It's district attorneys and state's attorneys that decide whether or not to investigate and ultimately charge those involved in police misconduct. Those are all elected positions. In some places, police review review boards with the power to monitor police conduct are elected as well. Unfortunately, voter turnout in these local races is, uh, is usually pitifully low especially among young people, which makes no sense given the direct impact these offices have on social justice issues, not to mention the fact that who wins and who loses those seats is often determined by just a few thousand or even just a few hundred votes. So the bottom line is this. If we want to bring about real change, then the choice isn't between protest and politics. We have to do both. We have to mobilize to raise awareness, and we have to organize and cast our ballots to make sure that we elect candidates who will act on reform. Finally, uh, blah, 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 yeah, m- more and more, uh, just, just two more paragraphs that, that, that more or less just continue to say the same thing. Uh, then it says, let's get to work. Now there, I gotta tell you, there's not much in that I disagree with. Maybe, maybe there's a little too much of an assumption that all police departments are corrupt, but you have to, that's reading between the lines. Uh, and I know this is leaving God out of the picture but as a straightforward statement about civil liberties and civic responsibility, it's not bad. It's not bad. But it was written by Barack Obama. I emailed you not long ago cautioning against an us versus them mentality, as in church versus the government. Uh... But we, you know, we have to see, we actually see this same thing happening with the protests, especially the ones that go bad. Unfortunately, can you see that this is kind of top-down in our society? That's what's happening at the highest levels of government. That's what's making our government so ineffective, all this partisan acrimony. It doesn't matter how good a piece of legislation is. If a Republican crafted it, the Democrats won't endorse it and vice versa, anything but give the other side credit, no matter how good it is for society. There's, uh, maybe you've seen videos of people that go onto college campuses and they say, I'm going to read you a quote from Donald Trump and I I want you to tell me if you agree with it. And so they'll read it and they say, no, absolutely disagree. And then they say, actually, that's a Barack Obama quote. And they'll do the same thing. And it doesn't matter what the quote is. People will disagree with it based on who said it. Christians too. Sad. We might long for unity, but what can we unite around? With so many fundamental differences between the party platforms and individuals. You've heard this. I've heard this for years. I've heard it since the 80s anyway. And it was usually in reference to the abortion argument. You cannot legislate morality. It's true. But that's not an excuse or it's not a reason to not pass good laws. We still have to have good laws. In fact, because you can't legislate morality, that's why we need the good laws. Because laws can't change people's hearts. The laws exist for people without morals. Should, the laws shouldn't be for you. We, you and I shouldn't need civil laws to tell us not to steal or not to murder. We've got the word of God, and we've got a conscience that has been shaped and sharpened by the spirit of God, right? Who are the laws for? For people without what, uh, who lack what we have. God gave us those civil authorities to protect us from people who don't share our convictions. We need good laws. The Quakers in pre-Civil War times, in fact, going back to probably what, before the Revolution, uh, did not need civil liberties laws to to know that slavery was wrong. They fought against slavery for years before the Civil War, and then, of course, then it was another hundred years before the Civil Rights Act was passed. But they didn't need laws to know what was right. A lot of people didn't. But here's the thing. No law even perfectly enforced, will ever erase racism and hatred from human hearts. If all of our laws were perfect, and if our officials were honest, and our cops followed the law to the letter, there would still be crime. There would still be hatred. Let me ask you, what do you see as you watch these news reports of the riots? I mean, specifically, what do you see, not what you think? because most of us have said this. I agree with their right to protest. I disagree with the riots, but I at least understand the frustration that leads to the riots. But I draw the line at looting because now they're just taking advantage of the opportunity. This is where I land on it, by the way. I'm just telling you what I think. Appreciate the protests, don't like the rioting, draw the line at looting, absolutely. But what's happening here? The looting, that's stealing, right? The murder, no innocent, and they absolutely we draw the line of looting, but no innocent should be killed defending his, place, his business or her business, but it's happening. People are stealing, people are killing, they're burning buildings down. That's destruction. Who comes to steal, kill, and destroy? We know the enemy that's behind this, right? What does Jesus come for? To offer us life life more abundantly. You see, the enemy comes in to steal, kill, and destroy, and in response to his influence and through the outworking of the sin nature, man steals and kills and destroys. Jesus gives us life and life abundantly. And through our our response to his influence and our regenerate nature, Again, with a conscience sharpened by God, man gives and offers life to the world. How? Well, we pass good laws. We dispense justice, and we dispense mercy, and we care for the least of those in our midst. But more importantly, way more importantly, (laughs) is that we offer them the true, abundant, eternal life that has changed us. Keep your eyes on the prize because that, at the end of the day, is our only hope. Don't forget, barring a rapture or the soon return of Jesus, none of us are getting out of here alive. Our only hope is eternal life anyway. I'm going to tell this story. I heard Robbie tell this story a number of times, but I'm getting this one from a different source, so if you listen to Robbie a lot, this is going to sound different, but this is actually Billy Graham's version of this story. Conrad Adenauer, I don't know if you history buffs in here, Uh, Conrad Adenauer was the chancellor of West Germany after World War II. He had more to do with the reconstruction and the development of West uh, Germany as a a democracy and a friend of the United States and France and Great Britain than any other man. He was a true giant in the world of statesmanship. And uh, Billy Graham told this story. He said, I was invited to have coffee one morning with Conrad Adenauer before he retired as the chancellor of Germany. When I walked in, I expected to meet a tall, stiff, formal man who might even be embarrassed if I brought up the subject of religion. After the greeting, the chancellor turned to me and said, Mr. Graham, what is the most important thing in the world? This is one of the most important men in the world, asking Billy Graham, what is the most important thing in the world? Before I could answer, he had answered his own question. He said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ If Christ is alive, then there is hope for the world. If Jesus Christ is in the grave, then I don't see the slightest glimmer of hope on the horizon. Then he amazed me by saying that he believed that the resurrection of Christ was one of the best attested facts of history. He said, when I leave office, I intend to spend the rest of my life gathering scientific proof of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the fact of the resurrection of Christ that called the disciples to go out as burning young revolutionaries to change the world of their day. They preached that Christ is alive. This should be our message every day of the year. Folks, this is the heart of my message. Good laws are important. Good leaders are important. Your vote is important. And involvement with the courts and with legislators, communicating with your congressmen, those are all important. And protesting is important. But not one of these things, not one of these rights, not one of these practices will change a human heart. I understand, believe me, I understand, this is not an either-or proposition. Okay? It's, it's a, the, whole, the, the JWs would take the position that since we're not of this world, we're not going to participate in politics or any of this stuff. It's all going to burn anyway. That's not the Christian way. We do involve ourselves in both arenas. Let's just don't remember which is the more important one. God has not promised eternal life to the United States of America. He's promised it to believers. These issues, the issues surrounding uh, the coronavirus and the issues surrounding the protest, are causing division among believers. Division is another tactic of the enemy divide and conquer. Let's talk about these things. If we must discuss them, let's discuss them as brothers and sisters. Let's break bread instead of breaking fellowship. We may not ever see completely eye to eye on every political issue, but we must be unified in our commitment to Christ, his kingdom, and each other. Meanwhile, remember, remember we can be absolutely correct in how we view these difficulties, these insane developments, But for one thing, we live in a society that, by and large, has forgotten how to argue. We cannot have a civil, reasonable discussion with, unfortunately, way too many people. And for another thing, we can win every argument and still not win a single soul. Even if we manage to convert them to our political viewpoint, we can do so without winning them to Christ. We are offering or need to be offering them much more than the right political worldview and the right policies. We are offering what only Christ can offer, the only hope for humanity and its new life. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we're getting close to being done. I know this has been a long message, especially compared to lately. In 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 5, did I say that? For the love of Christ compels us. I'm beginning in verse 14. Sorry. For the love of Christ compels us, because we judge thus: that if one died for all, then all died. Am I in the right, Corinthians? Is it Second Corinthians? Second Corinthians five. Sorry, Second Corinthians chapter five, beginning in verse 14. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is powerful. You can forget about meaningful reconciliation between liberals and conservatives, about meaningful reconciliation between uh, Israel and the Arab world, and about meaning, unfortunately, in many cases, meaningful reconciliation between blacks and whites, until we first reconcile man and God every other legitimate, meaningful reconciliation has to flow from that ultimate reconciliation. We are broken at our core, and we need to be restored to the author of life, because he's the only one who can give us the new life we need. Then through that reconciliation, we can be ministers of every other form and manifestation of reconciliation. And the cross is the only way to that reconciliation. I mentioned earlier that we were all guilty and deserving of death. It's actually worse than that. We were condemned and sentence had been passed. But Christ died in our place. He paid the price that we owed so that we could be declared righteous before the righteous judge of the universe. What is our part? Simply be humble enough to acknowledge that. Cry out to him for salvation. Submit your life to him as Lord and believe in his resurrection from the dead. Very quickly now, as we move uh, to uh, communion time, is there anybody in here who desires to be reconciled to God today? I can't have you come up front. We are observing social distancing, and I know it's tough. It might be embarrassing, but this is the issue of life itself. You cannot be a minister of Racial reconciliation, societal reconciliation, until you are reconciled to God. And and we're also, obviously, by the way, I hope you recognize, we're talking about our salvation. We're talking about our eternal destiny. We're talking about heaven and hell. Does anyone in here desire to be reconciled to God through Jesus Christ today? Would you be bold enough just to raise your hand? I'm not going to have you come down here. I am just going to have you let me know. Yes, Scott, I want to pray. I want you to pray with me, and I will pray with you. Anybody today? Quickly, quickly! Raise your hand and say, "I want to be that Christian today." You've done it. You're a believer. You're just praising God. Praise God. Anybody? Okay. I uh, that that invitation remains open, 24/7. Uh, I had somebody I had somebody call me this week, not in this church, 1:30 in the morning just to talk because he was agonizing over some decision he had to make. And uh, I gave him an earful. And and, and I'm not an unkind guy. (laughs) I have a history with this guy, and I just kind of had to tell him, buddy, don't ever call me at 1.30 in the morning for something like this. I keep my phone on, because, and I don't always hear it, but I keep it there in case there's an emergency. This is an emergency. You wake up at 2 in the morning, and you say, Scott, I need somebody to pray with me. I am not going to chew you out for calling me at 2 in the morning. God convicts you and you want to get saved at two in the morning, you're going to get saved at two in the morning. Don't wait another minute. That's how important it is. So the invitation remains open. But for now, everybody in this room who wants to be a Christian is a Christian. And we as Christians, as believers, are going to celebrate the Lord's table. Uh, Did everybody get your communion element? Did anybody miss getting the uh, self-contained deal? Have you fiddled with that thing so that you can get the... I haven't. Uh, a little bit tricky. There we go. Uh, We'll take, you don't need to open it yet, but just be ready. You can open your Bibles to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read a little bit more than I normally do, but we're almost done. 1 Corinthians 11, beginning of verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, Paul writes, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. "'For there must also be factions among you "'that those who are approved may be recognized among you. "'Therefore, when you come together in one place, "'it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. "'For in eating, each one takes his own supper "'ahead of others, and one is hungry, "'and another is drunk. "'What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? "'Or do you despise the church of God "'and shame those who have nothing? "'What shall I say to you? "'Shall I praise you in this? "'I do not praise you, for I received from the Lord.' But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Now, there's a lot in there. I just want to point out a couple quick things. Paul is talking about division in the body, and it is abhorrent to him. You read the tone there. You know what I heard? He's not talking about, I heard there's child sacrifices happening in the church. I heard that there's smoking in the bathroom. I heard that uh, all these horrible things are happening. And you know, no, I heard that when you come together as a church, that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. And we'd be thinking, come on, he's talking about cliques. What's the difference? He's like, no, we should be unified We should recognize that when we get together for the Lord's Supper, it isn't so that this little group can sit over here and eat, and this little group can sit over here and eat and forget about everybody else. We do this together. We wait on one another because this is not just a party. It's certainly not just a meal. It is an ordinance. It is something that God had given us to specifically remember him by. And. When we partake of the Lord's table, we are celebrating our reconciliation to God by his shed blood. But we are also nourishing ourselves with his body, and we are reminding ourselves that we are his body. His body was broken so that we might be healed. And that does mean physical healing from diseases, but it also means reconciliation to one another. Reconciliation between man and God, reconciliation among the brethren, and that spills out into reconciliation in society. COVID cannot silence the church. Racism can't destroy the church not from the outside but strife will divide the church if we let it we can disagree about particulars but let's disagree in love we can disagree with our elected officials but let's disagree in love we don't have to be monolithic about that our first allegiance is to jesus christ and his kingdom secondly and connected our allegiances to the household of faith, the body, and that's one another. After that, we can commit to ideologies and we can commit to our homeland, but Christ first and always. If you are a believer, you are welcome to join us. If you have not made that decision for Christ, we thank you for... uh, uh, sitting this part out. You don't have to be a member of Living Word Family Church to partake of communion. You just have to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Let's take the bread. Everybody got it out? Thank you, Lord, for the broken body of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for allowing your body to be broken on our behalf, to purchase our healing and to purchase our reconciliation. Thank you, Lord, that your body was broken for our wholeness, individually and as a corporate expression of your body in this local church for which we thank you. Thank you for the healing. Thank you for reconciliation. Thank you for wholeness. Thank you for the bread in Jesus' name. Carefully open your cup. Thank you, Father, for the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ for giving your life on the cross for dying in our place and pouring your blood out to wash us of our sins so that we can be clean so that we can be declared righteous before God remind us always lord to never take that for granted that our reconciliation to you was purchased with the blood of your son help us not to trample under underfoot that that grace and that blood and help us to be ministers effective ambassadors for that message of reconciliation. Help us to walk in wisdom as we walk in righteousness and help us to always remember that we are only righteous because of the blood. Thank you for the cup in Jesus' name. Put your wrapper inside your cup. Do not pass the cup. Hang on to it. One last thing. We have honored the Lord today with our worship. I believe we've honored him as we've listened to his word and we have honored him as we've observed the Lord table. Let's continue to honor him with our giving. He has been good to supply us through this mess, hasn't he? I've heard good testimonies from some of you, how God has taken care of you through these difficult times. And you, as a church, have been extraordinarily faithful in your giving and your continued support of this church. It's enabled us to continue. I get, I'm getting more and more messages and uh, letters from the people we support kind of very enthusiastically thanking us for continuing to support them because they know what, what trying times these are. And I remind you that as you do that, you are sowing seed— that is going to bear fruit in your life. That's a promise from God. As we put his kingdom first with our finances, he will be a faithful source of supply to us. Why? Because he's promised to give bread to the eater and seed to the sower. So let's don't stop sowing. Let's don't stop giving. Let's don't stop being faithful to God with our giving. Uh, You should have got an envelope on the way in. So I trust that you are ready to give. I'm going to pray over this offering. Then, I'm going, then you are dismissed by Rose. The ushers will come and dismiss you. And as you exit, there's a garbage can for your uh, cup. And there is another receptacle for the offering. The ushers will direct you. You are dismissed when I'm done praying. Actually, you're dismissed when the ushers dismiss you. Uh, that'll be it as, as we prepare to worship the Lord with our giving. Heavenly Father, thank you again. Thank you so much for this day for our being back together, for our enjoying the presence of of being in the presence of the body. And we thank you now, as always, for the opportunity to give into the work of your kingdom. We acknowledge that you are the source of all of our supply, and so we joyfully return a portion of it back to you as you've commanded, and we believe that as we obey you with the tithe and the offering, that you will be faithful to open up the windows of heaven and pour out blessing there's not room enough to contain, that it'll be multiplied back to us, Father, so that we can give again. Thank you for every person that's giving, and thank you for, what you for the seed you've given us to sow. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you give. I'll see you out there. No handshakes, no kisses. Give me a wave and a smile, though, okay? Love you. Family, can we go? Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.